this morning we pray for your presence through the Holy Spirit that you'll touch our hearts. We need you God to lead us closer to you and to help give us an understanding of how much you love us. So thank you for hearing our prayer this morning. In the name of Jesus, your Son, our God and Saviour, Amen. I've called this Bible study this morning the Babylon Experiment. In fact, uh, as I was getting it ready, I was trying to decide whether I would call it the Babylon Experiment or the Babylon Temptation. I finally settled on the title, The Babylon Experiment. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick this Bible story up. It's very early in the Bible. In fact, this story is probably 4,000 years old. If you turn your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 8. Genesis 10, verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, when we look at this story about a man called Nimrod, there's not a whole lot of information about him in the Bible but there is enough for us to get a glimpse into his life and to see what sort of a man and what sort of a character he had. The Bible says that he lived just after the flood. In fact, if you have a look at the genealogies of the Bible, you'll find that Noah was the father of Ham, Ham was the father of Cush, and Cush was the father of Nimrod. So he is not very far down the line. He's a very interesting character because we're also told in verse 8 and 9 of Genesis 10 that Cush was a mighty warrior. Now that does give us a little glimpse into what sort of man he was. He was only fourth in the line down from Noah. So if he was a mighty warrior, he must have been fighting against relatives. He must have been fighting against kin. He must have been shedding the blood of those he was related to. Now, that gives you a little glimpse into the fact that this man was not really a good man. We also know the Bible tells us he was a mighty hunter. And in those days, to be a mighty hunter would indeed have upped your reputation. He used to hunt, I think, probably for two reasons. Firstly, for protection. The animals that came off the ark, and you can have a look at the skeletons and the bones that scientists are still finding today. The animals, the animals that came off the ark were very large, were very fierce, far bigger than the animals we see in the world today. And he would hunt to protect the people. He would also hunt for food. And because he was able to fulfil both those roles, he grew in esteem in the hearts and the minds of those ancient people. We also know as we read the Bible that Nimrod was an empire builder. He was the founder of the great city of Babylon. He also founded Nineveh. You may have heard of these ancient cities somewhere in your readings or your study. He also founded seven other powerful cities in the region of modern Iraq today. The Bible says in Genesis 10 verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I can't read ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, 
or Greek, the three languages that the Bible is written in. I wish I could, perhaps one day I'll try and learn, well, one at a time. But I know that if you go back to the original Hebrew here, that the Bible clearly says that Nimrod was in rebellion against God. And as Nimrod set up his kingdom, he introduced pagan idol worship while forsaking the true God of heaven. In fact, as you study the life of Nimrod, it seems that the pagan idol worship that he set up originally was worship of himself. Nimrod, this man that lived 4,000 years ago, was a god king. He would go out, he would fight battles, he would hunt, he would protect the people. In fact, Nimrod was the first to build walls around cities. He was a hero, he was looked up to and he made himself in the sight of God, in the face of God, he made himself a God king. And it was Nimrod, as we look at what the Bible says and what history says, It was Nimrod that led the earth in their first worldwide rebellion against God after the flood. Listen to this from Josephus. Josephus was was a first century Jewish historian. In fact, he lived just a little bit after the time of, of Jesus. Now, Josephus says this, watch this carefully. Now, the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. I hope you understand what Josephus is saying here. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pains, nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high, sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness of it was so great, and it was so strongly built, that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. Do you see what Nimrod's doing here? This is just after the flood. He builds a great tower, says Josephus, and he builds this tower up into the sky. Again, it's in your face, God. If you're going to set a flood, well, this time we'll be ready for you. You will not catch us out. More than build a tower high enough to escape any flood you can send to us, God. I'm going to, says Nimrod, I'm going to make it waterproof. You get the, you get the feel of the rebellion that, that's seething out of Nimrod's, the anger that's, that's pouring out of Nimrod's life, of his actions and his heart to the great God of heaven. Now, Josephus this first century AD historian says, when God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly, since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners, by the destruction of the flood. But he caused a great tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages and causing that through the multitudes of those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of the language which they readily understood before for the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Josephus, Jewish historian. This is the Babylon experiment. It is rebellion against God. It's saying, God, I don't need you. It's saying, God, more than that, not only do I not need you, I'm opposed to you. I'm actively opposed to you. 
and I will lead my own life how I want and there's nothing, God, you can do about it. This is what Nimrod was saying to God through his life and his actions. The biblical account of this story is found in Genesis chapter 11. And you get the same sort of story that Josephus recounts because Nimrod does build a tower. This is historical fact. This is the beginning of Babylon, that ancient city that set itself up as a centre of idol worship down through the centuries. It set itself up against God. Babylon the Great. And they built this tower. And God looks down, Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, and he says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. God says, Come, let us. This is a triune God. This is God the Father. This is God the Son. This is God the Holy Spirit. And they say, Let us go down and deal with Nimrod and these people. The Bible says in verse 9, that they went down and the place was called Babel because it was there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the whole face of the earth. It's interesting that in the Muslim holy book they have a similar story. In fact, in many of the religious traditions in the world the story of the Tower of Babel is there. The Muslim holy book, it says that the original language was Syriac and that God split the languages at the Tower of Babel into 72 other languages. So next time you're in Europe and you're trying to buy a loaf of bread in France, and I know what this is like, next time you're there and you're struggling to get something to eat on one of your travels, on one of your holidays, if you're so blessed and been fortunate enough to do that, and you're struggling, think of Nimrod, because it was through his rebellion that all the languages and the peoples of the world were scattered. So let's have a look at this Babylon experiment for a moment. Number one, it always ends up in confusion. You, you set yourself against God. You be very sure. You are going to end up in confusion, lost. Number two, it is a worldwide rebellion. It was a worldwide rebellion back in the Tower of Babel. And we're going to find out later on today. It's a worldwide rebellion that's still alive in the world today. With his empire in ruins, cut down by God, how did Nimrod die? How did Nimrod die? Well, traditions, there are two. One, he was killed by a wild animal. That's highly likely. He was a hunter. He used to hunt for protection, he used to hunt to kill. Secondly, and I think this is probably the more accurate of the traditions, some of the history books, the ancient history books, the ancient stories, the ancients' legends claim that Shem was a big, mighty man, son of Noah, a man of God. He was bigger than Nimrod. He was more powerful than Nimrod. How do I know that? Because Shem was an antediluvian. Shem came through the flood. Man began to de degenerate after the flood. They began to be smaller, not as strong, not as big. They didn't live as many years. Check the Bible genealogies out in Genesis. Some say that Shem came down and killed him. I don't know what happened to him, and nor does history really, except not long after the Tower of Babel, this great rebellion against God, Nimrod ceased to exist. But this is not where the story ends. In fact, it gets very interesting, and I want you to follow along very closely this morning to this story. 
Semiramis was Nimrod's wife. What do we know about Semiramis? Well, she was probably Nimrod's own mother. She survived Nimrod by many years, we know that. And she was a very, very wicked woman. There's a great Protestant historian. His name is Hislop and he wrote a wonderful book. And if you can get it in the library or you can find it on, on eBay or Amazon somewhere, buy it. It's called, it's called, and I'll make sure I get this right, Two Babylons. And in this book, Hislop, who probably did more study into the life of Nimrod in ancient Babylon than any other scholar before or since his time, he claims that, that, that when, when Nimrod died, Semiramis threw his body into the river and then she said to the people of Babylon, he has gone to the sun. And she said, because he has gone to the sun, because he is a god king, we must now worship the sun. And people began to worship the sun. Can you believe it? That's what happened. Hislop further claims that sometime after Nimrod died, and it was quite a, a long time after Nimrod died, Semiramis becomes pregnant. She said Nimrod comes down and visits her from the sun one night and they conceived a son, a virgin birth. When he was born, Semiramis called him Tammuz. People began to worship not only the sun god Nimrod, but Tammuz. And they also worshipped Semiramis. Nimrod became known as Baal. Tammuz, well let me tell you a little bit about Tammuz. Tammuz was born on December 25. Let me tell you some history. Every Bible scholar worth his salt knows this. Jesus was born nowhere near December 25. December 25 is in the middle of the Middle East winter. It's not the time of travel. Jesus was born in the Middle East summer, not winter. December 25 is Tammuz's birthday. And this birthday of Tammuz's was taken by the Christian church, incorporated into Christianity and became known as Christmas Day. Now, don't, I'm not saying don't celebrate Christmas. In fact, oh, quite the opposite. I'm of the belief today that, that anything that directs the world to Jesus Christ is a good thing. Easter, all to do with Tammuz. Nothing to do with the crucifixion or the death of Jesus. And you Christians out there in this church and watching this on television, I challenge you. There is no way in all the world that Jesus died on Easter Friday, rested Easter Sabbath and rose Easter Sunday. That's not true. Jesus died during the Passover. Now, the Passover is close to Easter, but Jesus did not die at Easter. That is a historical fact. He died, and it's a fact, he died in the Jewish Passover time. This Easter thing, it's a heathen pagan tradition taken from paganism and put into Christianity. Now, here's one that will challenge some of you. And it's a fact. The worship of the sun god, Nimrod, or if you like, Baal, was guess what day? Sun day. Worshipping the sun god on sun day. And this day, Sunday, was taken by the Christian church. It was baptised. And by the Christian church, it was made holy and it replaced the biblical Sabbath. 
historical fact. I challenge you to go anywhere in the Bible, Christians in the church, Christians watching this on television. You go anywhere in the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 and you will, you will not find one single place where God replaced the Sabbath with Sunday. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Christian church preaches the Ten Commandments all over the world and yet it's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine they want to follow. Very, very interesting. You can go in the Bible and you can see as Israel struggles with worship, worship to Tammuz and, and worship to, to Baal. Go and read Ezekiel chapter 8 and, and it, it upset God as Israel, as the surrounding nations worshipped these heathen, these pagan gods that had, had their origins with this rebellious man and his family. In fact, the Bible says that God annihilated the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans because of their worship to these pagan dead gods. In fact, it was Israel's great problem right through their history. They struggled as they worshipped these heathen pagan gods that had their origins in Babylon. So the Babylon experience always ends up in confusion. It is worldwide. It is a religious thing. It involves false gods. It always ends up in annihilation. Babylon always falls and is anything outside an experience with God. Now listen to me. Babylon was not just a city. It was the centre of, now listen to this, it was the centre of all that opposed God in the ancient world. Babylon was always the enemy of God's people. Babylon was always the city that this pagan worship came out of. And it was Babylon, at the end of time, that sets itself up against God. Yes, the spirit of Babylon, the Babylon temptation, the Babylon experience is still alive in the world today. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, this is Bible prophecy. This is end time Bible prophecy. Look at this. I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. End time prophecy that's best. And with a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and as a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable thing. Whoa. What is modern day Babylon? You telling me, Pastor, there's a modern day Babylon? Well, you better believe it. It always ends up in confusion. It's a worldwide thing. It's a religious thing. It's a worship thing. It involves false gods. Always ends up in annihilation. Babylon always falls. And is there anything, it is anything outside an experience with God. If you love something, hear me today. Here's the key to what I'm trying to tell you. If you love something more than God, then you are in modern day Babylon. If you love money, now there's nothing wrong with money. You can do lots of good things with money. But if you love money more than you love God, you are in Babylon and you are in a city, you are in a kingdom that will fall. If you love pleasure, holidays, nothing wrong with pleasure, nothing wrong with holidays. But if you love them more than God, you're in Babylon. If you love fashion, the clothes you dress in. If you love these things more than God, there's nothing wrong with fashion. There's nothing wrong with beautiful clothes. But if you love them more than God, you're in Babylon. Movies, music, doesn't matter what it is. If you have anything in your life, can be good or bad. 
and you love it more than God, then you are in Babylon. And the Bible says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now, Jesus calls us out of Babylon. Verse 4 of Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Jesus calls us out of Babylon. He calls us out of this self-worship, this concept, this idea that, that I am what counts much more than God, that it's how I feel and what I want that matters. That's Babylon, that's Nimrod, that's Semiramis, that's Tammuz. Jesus says, come out of it. He says, it's empty. He said, you drink of that well, you'll always be thirsty. You come to me, he says, I will quench your thirst. Come out of Babylon. He says, if you eat the food that Babylon offers, Jesus said, you will always be hungry. He says, come to me. He says, I will satisfy your hunger. Jesus says, I will give you peace. Jesus says, come home, come out of Babylon. And for thousands of years, God has been calling people out of Babylon. And this morning he's calling you. Will you respond to his call? Will you invite him into your heart? Will you let Jesus be the saviour of your soul and mean more to you, more to you than anything in these? Well, there's an old song, and I'll close on this. And I used to sing it as a boy. I don't even know who sings it. But, but the words go something like this. Lovest thou me more than these, my child? What will your answer be? Lovest thou me? Love us, our me, says Jesus. I love you more, says Jesus. I love you more. Do you love me? Lord Jesus, the world is full of Babylon. Satan endeavouring to get us to try everything, to put everything ahead of Jesus, our Saviour and our God. Give us the wisdom to see this, Lord, and give us the desire to allow Jesus into our hearts so he can make a difference in our lives in your name. Amen. Kids.